Chapter fifteen of Sixty Years in Southern California, eighteen fifty three to nineteen thirteen, by Harris Newmark. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Chapter fifteen Sheriff Barton and the Banditos, eighteen fifty seven. In the beginning of eighteen fifty seven, we had a more serious earthquake than any in recent years. At half past eight o'clock on the morning of January ninth, a tremor shook the earth from north to south the first shocks being light the quake grew in power until houses were deserted men women and children sought refuge in the streets and horses and cattle broke loose in wild alarm for perhaps two or two and a half minutes the temblor continued and much damage was done los angeles felt the disturbance far less than many other places although five to six shocks were noted and twenty times during the week people were frightened from their homes at temple's rancho and at fort tejon great rents were opened in the earth and then closed again piling up a heap or dune of finely powdered stone and dirt large trees were uprooted and hurled down the hillsides and tumbling after them went the cattle many officers including colonel b l beale well known in los angeles circles barely escaped from the barracks with their lives and until the cracked adobes could be repaired officers and soldiers lived in tents it was at this time too that a so-called tidal wave almost engulfed the seabird plying between san pedro and san francisco as she was entering the golden gate under the splendid seamanship of captain salisbury haley however his little ship weathered the wave and he was able later to report her awful experience to the scientific world this year also proved a dry season and consequently times became very bad with two periods of adversity even the richest of the cattle kings felt the pinch and many began to part with their lands in order to secure the relief needed to tide them over the effects of drought continued until eighteen fifty eight although some good influences improved business conditions due to glowing accounts of the prospects for conquest and fortune given out by henry a crabb a stockton lawyer who married a spanish woman with relatives in sonora a hundred or more filibusters gathered in los angeles in january to meet crabb at san pedro when he arrived from the north on the steamer seabird they strutted about the streets here displaying rifles and revolvers and this would seem to have been enough to prevent their departure for sonita a little town a hundred miles beyond yuma to which they finally tramped the filibusters were permitted to leave however and they invaded the foreign soil but crabb made a mess of the undertaking even failing in blowing up a little church he attacked and those not killed in the skirmish were soon surrounded and taken prisoners the next morning crabb and some others who had paraded so ostentatiously while here were tied to trees or posts and summarily executed crabb's body was riddled with a hundred bullets and his head cut off and sent back in mescal only one of the party was spared charlie evans a lad of fifteen years who worked his way to los angeles and was connected with a somewhat similar invasion a while later in january also when threats were made against the white population of southern california mrs griffin the wife of dr j s griffin came running in all excitement to the home of joseph newmark and told the members of the family to lock all their doors and bolt their windows as it was reported that some of the outlaws were on their way to los angeles to murder the white people as soon as possible the ladies of the griffin nichols foy mallard workman newmark and other families were brought in together for greater safety in armory hall on spring street near second while the men took their places in line with the other citizens to patrol the hills and streets a still vivid impression of this startling episode recalls an englishman a dr carter who arrived here some three years before 
he lived on the east side of main street near first where the macdonald block now stands and while not prominent in his profession he associated with some estimable families when others were volunteering for sentry work or to fight the doctor very gallantly offered his services as a committee of one to care for the ladies far from the firing line on hearing of these threats by native bandidos james r barton formerly a volunteer under general s w kearney and then sheriff at once investigated the rumors and the truth of the reports being verified our small and exposed community was seized with terror a large band of mexican outlaws led by pancho daniel a convict who had escaped from san quentin prison and included luciano tapia and juan flores on january twenty second had killed a german storekeeper named george w flugart in san juan capistrano while he was preparing his evening meal and after having placed his body on the table they sat around and ate what the poor victim had provided for himself on the same occasion these outlaws plundered the stores of manuel garcia henry charles and miguel kragevsky or krasuski the last name escaping by hiding under a lot of wash in a large clothes basket when the news of this murder reached los angeles excitement rose to fever heat and we prepared for something more than defense jim barton accompanied by william h little and charles k baker both constables charles f daly an early blacksmith here alfred hardy and frank alexander all volunteers left that evening for san juan capistrano to capture the murderers and soon arrived at the san joaquin ranch about eighteen miles from san juan there don jose andres sepulveda told barton of a trap set for him and that the robbers outnumbered his posse two to one and urged him to send back to los angeles for more volunteers brave but reckless barton however persisted in pushing on the next day and so encountered some of the marauders in santiago canyon barton baker little and daly were killed while hardy and alexander escaped when los angeles was apprised of this second tragedy the frenzy was indescribable and steps were taken toward the formation of both a committee of safety and a vigilance committee the latter to avenge the foul deed and bring in the culprits in meeting this emergency the el monte boys as usual took an active part the city was placed under martial law and dr john s griffin was put in charge of the local defenses suspicious houses thought to be headquarters for robbers and thieves were searched and forty or fifty persons were arrested the state legislature was appealed to and at once voted financial aid although the committee of safety had the assistance of special foot police in guarding the city the citizens made a requisition on fort tejon and fifty soldiers were sent from that post to help pursue the band troops from san diego with good horses and plenty of provisions were also placed at the disposition of the los angeles authorities companies of mounted rangers were made up to scour the country american german and french citizens vying with one another for the honor of risking their lives one such company being formed at el monte and another at san bernardino there were also two detachments of native californians but many sonorans and mexicans from other states either from sympathy or fear aided the murdering robbers and so made their pursuit doubly difficult however the outlaws were pursued far into the mountains and although the first party sent out returned without effecting anything reporting that the desperadoes were not far from san juan and that the horses of the pursuers had given out practically all of the band as will be seen were eventually captured not only were vigorous measures taken to apprehend and punish the murderers but provision was made to rescue the bodies of the slain and to give them decent and honorable burial the next morning after nearly one hundred mounted and armed men had set out to track the fugitives another party also on horseback left to escort several wagons filled with coffins 
in which they hoped to bring back the bodies of Sheriff Barton and his comrades. In this effect the posse succeeded, and when the remains were received in Los Angeles on Sunday about noon, the city at once went into mourning. All business was suspended, and the impressive burial ceremonies, conducted on Monday, were intended by citizens en masse. Oddly enough, there was not a Protestant clergyman in town at the time, but the Masonic Order took the matter in hand and performed their rites over those who were Masons, and even paid their respects, with a portion of the ritual, to the non-Masonic dead. General Andres Pico, with a company of native mounted Californians, who left immediately after the funeral, was especially prominent in running down the outlaws, thus again displaying his natural gift of leadership, and others fitted themselves out and followed as soon as they could. General Pico knew both land and people, and on capturing Silvas and Arderio, two of the worst of the banditos, after a hard resistance, he straightway hung them to trees, at the very spot where they had tried to assassinate him and his companions. In the pursuit of the murderers, James Thompson, successor in the following January to the murdered Sheriff Getman, led a company of horsemen toward the Tehunga, and at the Simi Pass, high upon the rocks, he stationed United States soldiers as a lookout. Little San Gabriel, in which J. F. Burns, as deputy sheriff, was on the watch, also made its contribution to the restoration of order and peace. For some of its people captured and executed three or four of Daniels's and Flores's band. Flores was caught on the top of a peak in the Santiago Range. All in all, some fifty-two culprits were brought to Los Angeles and lodged in jail, and of that number, eleven were lynched or legally hung. When the Vigilance Committee had jailed a suspected murderer, the people were called to sit in judgment. We met near the veranda of the Montgomery, and Judge Jonathan R. Scott, having been made chairman, a regular order of procedure, extra-legal though it was, was followed. After announcing the capture and naming the criminal, the judge called upon the crowd to determine the prisoner's fate. Thereupon someone would shout, Hang him! Scott would then put the question somewhat after the following formula. Gentlemen, you have heard the motion. All those in favor of hanging so-and-so will signify by saying aye. And the citizens present unanimously answered aye. Having thus expressed their will, the assemblage proceeded to the jail, a low adobe building behind the little municipal and county structure, and easily subdued the jailer, Frank J. Carpenter, whose daughter Josephine became Frank Burns's second wife. The prisoner was then secured, taken from his cell, escorted to Fort Hill, a rise of ground behind the jail, where a temporary gallows had been constructed and promptly dispatched, and after each of the first batch of culprits had there successively paid the penalty for his crime, the avengers quietly dispersed to their homes to await the capture and dragging in of more cutthroats. Among those condemned by vote at a public meeting in the way I have described was Juan Flores, who was hanged on February 14, 1857, well up on Fort Hill, in sight of such a throng that it is hardly too much to say that practically every man woman and child in the pueblo was present not to mention many people drawn by curiosity from various parts of the state who had flocked into town flores was but twenty-one years of age yet the year previous he had been sent to prison for horse-stealing at the same time that flores was executed miguel blanco who had stabbed the militiaman captain w w twist in order to rob him of a thousand dollars was also hanged Espinosa and Lopez, two members of the robber band, for a while eluded their pursuers. At San Buenaventura, however, they were caught, and on the following morning Espinosa was hung. Lopez again escaped, and it was not until February 16th that he was finally recaptured and dispatched to other realms. 
Two days after Juan Flores was sent to a warmer clime, Luciano Tapia and Thomas King were executed. Tapia's case was rather regrettable, for he had been a respectable laborer at San Luis Obispo until Flores, meeting him, persuaded him to abandon honest work. Tapia came to Los Angeles, joined the robber band, and was one of those who helped to kill Sheriff Barton. In 1857, the Sisters of Charity founded the Los Angeles Infirmary, the first regular hospital in the city, with Sister Anna, for years well known here as Sister Superior. For a while, temporary quarters were taken in the house long occupied by Don José María Aguilar and family, which property the Sisters soon purchased. But the next year they bought some land from Don Luis Arenas, adjoining Don José Andrés Sepulvedas, and were thus enabled to enlarge the hospital their service being the best in time they were enabled to acquire a good-sized two-story building of brick in the upper part of the city and there their patients enjoyed the refreshing and health-restoring environment of garden and orchard it was not until this year that on the corner of alameda and bath streets oscar macy city treasurer in eighteen eighty seven to eighty eight opened the first public bathhouse having built a water-wheel with small cans attached to the paddles to dip water up from the Alameda Zanja as a medium for supplying his tank. He provided hot water as well as cold. Oscar charged fifty cents a bath and furnished soap and towels. In 1857 the steamship Senator left San Francisco on the fifth and twentieth of each month, and so continued until the people wanted a steamer at least once every ten days. Despite the inconvenience and expense of obtaining water for the home, it was not until February 24th that Judge W. G. Dryden, who, with a man named McFadden, had established the nucleus of a system, was granted a franchise to distribute water from his land and to build a water wheel in the Zanja Madre. The Dryden, formerly known as the Abila Springs and later the source of the Baudry supply, were near the site selected for the San Fernando Street Railway Station and from these springs water was conveyed by Assange to the plaza. There, in the center, a brick tank, perhaps ten feet square and fifteen feet high, was constructed, and this was filled by means of pumps, while from the tank wooden pipes distributed water to the consumer. So infrequently did we receive intelligence from the remoter parts of the world throughout the fifties that sometimes a report, especially if apparently authentic, when it finally reached here, created real excitement. I recall more or less vividly the arrival of the stages from the senator, late in March, and the stir made when the news was passed from mouth to mouth that Livingston, the explorer, had at last been heard from in far-off and unknown Africa. Los Angeles schools were then open only part of the year, the school board being compelled in the spring to close them for want of money. William Wolfskill, however, rough pioneer though he was, came to the board's rescue. He was widely known as an advocate of popular education, having, as I have said, his own private teachers, and to his lasting honor he gave the board sufficient funds to make possible the reopening of one of the schools. In 1857 I again revisited San Francisco. During the four years since my first visit a complete metamorphosis had taken place. Tents and small frame structures were being largely replaced with fine buildings of brick and stone. Many of the sand dunes had succumbed to the march of improvement, gardens were much more numerous, and the uneven character of streets and sidewalks had been wonderfully improved. In a word, the spirit of Western progress was asserting itself, and the city by the Golden Gate was taking on a decidedly metropolitan appearance. 
Notwithstanding various attempts at citrus culture in Southern California, some time elapsed before there was much of an orange or lemon industry in this vicinity. In 1854, a Dr. Halsey started an orange and lime nursery on the Roland Place, which he soon sold to William Wolfskill for $4,000 and in april eighteen fifty seven when there were not many more than a hundred orange trees bearing fruit in the whole county wolfskill planted several thousand and so established what was to be for that time the largest orange orchard in the united states he had thrown away a good many of the lemon trees received from halsey because they were frostbitten but he still had some lemon orange and olive trees left later under the more scientific care of his son joseph wolfskill who extended the original Wolfskill Grove, this orchard was made to yield very large crops. In 1857, a group of Germans living in San Francisco bought 1,200 acres of waste sandy land at $2 an acre from Don Pacifico Ontiveros, and on it started the town of Anaheim, a name composed of the Spanish Ana from Santa Ana and the German Heim for home. And this was the first settlement in the county founded after my arrival. This land formed a block about one and one-quarter miles square, some three miles from the Santa Ana River, and five miles from the residence of Don Bernardo Yorba, from whom the company received special privileges. A. Langenberger, a German, who married Yorba's daughter, was probably one of the originators of the Anaheim plan. At any rate, his influence with his father-in-law was of value to his friends in completing the deal. There were fifty shareholders, who paid seven hundred and fifty dollars each, with an executive council composed of Otmar Kaler, President, G. Charles Kohler, Vice President, Cyrus Bythine, Treasurer, and John Fisher, Secretary, while John Froling, R. Emerson, Felix Bachman, who was a kind of sub-treasurer, and Louis Jasinski, made up the Los Angeles Auditing Committee. George Hansen, afterward the colony's superintendent, surveyed the tract and laid it out in fifty twenty-acre lots with streets and a public park around it a live fence of some forty to fifty thousand willow cuttings placed at intervals of a couple of feet was planted a main canal six to seven miles long with a fall of fifteen to twenty feet brought abundant water from the santa ana river while some three hundred and fifty miles of lateral ditches distributed the water to the lots on each lot some eight or ten thousand grapevines were set out the first as early as january eighteen fifty eight on december fifteenth eighteen fifty nine the stockholders came south to settle on their partially cultivated land and although but one among the entire number knew anything about wine-making the dream of the projectors to establish there the largest vineyard in the world bade fair to come true the colonists were quite a curious mixture two or three carpenters, four blacksmiths, three watchmakers, a brewer, an engraver, a shoemaker, a poet, a miller, a bookbinder, two or three merchants, a hatter, and a musician. But being mostly of sturdy, industrious German stock, they soon formed such a prosperous and important little community that by 1876 the settlement had grown to nearly 2,000 people. A peculiar plan was adopted for investment, sale, and compensation. Each stockholder paid the same price at the beginning, and later all drew for the lots, the apportionment being left to chance. But since the pieces of land were conceded to have dissimilar values, those securing the better lots equalized in cash with their less likely associates. Soon after 1860, when Langenberger had erected the first hotel there, Anaheim took a leading place in the production of grapes and wine, and this position of honor it kept until, in 1888, 
a strange disease suddenly attacked and within a single year killed all the vines after which the cultivation of oranges and walnuts was undertaken Kohler and Froling had wineries in both San Francisco and Los Angeles the latter being adjacent to the present corner of Central Avenue and 7th Street and this firm purchased most of Anaheim's grape crop although some vineyard owners made their own wine Morris L Goodman by the way was here at an early period and was one of the first settlers of Anaheim Hermann Heinsch a native of Prussia arrived in Los Angeles in 1857 and soon after engaged in the harness and saddlery business on march eighth eighteen sixty three he was married to mary hap having become proficient at german schools in both music and languages heinsch lent his time and efforts to the organization and drill of germans here and contributed much to the success of both the teutonia and the turnverein in eighteen sixty nine the heinsch building was erected at the corner of commercial and los angeles streets and as late as 1876 this was a shopping district, a Mrs. T.J. Baker having a dressmaking establishment there. After a prosperous career, Heinsch died on January 13, 1883. His wife followed him on April 14, 1906. R.C. Heinsch, a son, survives them. Major Walter Harris Harvey, a native of Georgia, once a cadet at West Point, but dismissed for his pranks, who about the middle of the 50s married Eleanor, eldest full sister of John G. Downey, and became the father of J. Downey Harvey, now living in San Francisco, settled in California shortly after the Mexican War. During the first week in May, 1857, or some four years before he died, Major Harvey arrived from Washington with an appointment as Register of the Land Office, in place of H. P. Dorsey. At the same time, Don Agustin Oliveira was appointed Receiver, in lieu of General Andres Pico. These and other rotations in office were due, of course, to national administration changes, President Buchanan having recently been inaugurated. One of the interesting legal inquiries of the 50s was conducted in 1857 when, in the district court here, Antonio Maria Lugo, crowned with the white of 76 winters, testified at a hearing to establish certain claims to land as to what he knew of old ranchos hereabouts recalling many details of the pueblo and incidents as far back as 1785 he had seen the san rafael ranch for example in 1790 and he had also roamed as a young man over the still older dominguez and nietos hills charles henry forbes who was born at the mission san jose came to los angeles county in 1857 and though but 22 years old was engaged by don abel stearns to superintend his various ranchos becoming Stearns's business manager in 1866 with a small office on the ground floor of the Arcadia block. In 1864, Forbes married Doña Luisa Oliveira, daughter of Judge Augustine Oliveira, and a graduate of the sisters' school. On the death of Don Abel, in 1871, Forbes settled up Stearns's large estate, retaining his professional association with Doña Arcadia after her marriage to Colonel Baker, and even until he died in May, 1894. As I have intimated, the principal industry throughout Los Angeles County, and indeed throughout Southern California, up to the 60s, was the raising of cattle and horses, an undertaking favored by a people particularly fond of leisure and knowing little of the latent possibilities in the land, so that this entire area of magnificent soil supported herds which provided the whole population in turn, directly or indirectly, with a livelihood. The livestock subsisted upon the grass growing wild all over the county, and the prosperity of Southern California therefore depended entirely upon the season's rainfall. 
this was true to a far greater extent than one might suppose for water development had received no attention outside of los angeles if the rainfall was sufficient to produce feed dealers came from the north and purchased our stock and everybody thrived if on the other hand the season was dry cattle and horses died and the public's pocket-book shrank to very unpretentious dimensions as an incident in even a much later period than that which i here have in mind i can distinctly remember that i would rise three or four times during a single meal to see if the overhanging clouds had yet begun to give that rain which they had seemed to promise and which was so vital to our prosperity as for rain i am reminded that every newspaper in those days devoted much space to weather reports or rather to gossip about the weather at other points along the coast as well as to the consequent prospects here the weather was the one determining factor in the problem of a successful or a disastrous season and became a very important theme when ranchers and others congregated at our store and here i may mention apropos of this matter of rainfall and its general effects that there were millions of ground squirrels all over this country that shared with other animals the ups and downs of the season when there was plenty of rain these squirrels fattened and multiplied but when evil days came they sickened starved and perished on the other hand great overflows due to heavy rainfalls drowned many of these troublesome little rodents the raising of sheep had not yet developed any importance at the time of my arrival most of the mutton then consumed in los angeles coming from santa cruz island in the santa barbara channel though some was brought from san clemente and santa catalina islands on the latter there was a herd of from eight to ten thousand sheep in which oscar macy later acquired an interest and l harris father-in-law of h w frank the well and favorably known president and member of the board of education also had extensive herds there they ran wild and needed very little care and only semi-yearly visits were made to look after the shearing packing and shipping of the wool santa cruz island had much larger herds and steamers running to and from san francisco often stopped there to take on sheep and sheep products santa catalina island for years the property of don jose maria covarrubias and later of the eccentric san francisco pioneer james lick who crossed the plains in the same party with the lanfranco brothers and tried to entice them to settle in the north was not far from san clemente and there throughout the extent of her hills and vales roamed herd after herd of wild goats early seafarers i believe it has been suggested accustomed to carry goats on their sailing vessels for a supply of milk probably deposited some of the animals on catalina but however that may be hunting parties to this day explore the mountains in search of them considering therefore the small number of sheep here about eighteen fifty three it is not uninteresting to note that according to old records of san gabriel for the winter of eighteen twenty eight and twenty nine there were then at the mission no less than fifteen thousand sheep while in eighteen fifty eight on the other hand according to fairly accurate reports there were fully twenty thousand sheep in los angeles county two years later the number had doubled george carson a new yorker who came here in eighteen fifty two and after whom carson station is named was one of the first to engage in the sheep industry soon after he arrived he went into the livery business to which he gave attention even when in partnership successively with sanford dean and hicks in the hardware business on commercial street on july thirtieth eighteen fifty seven carson married doña victoria a daughter of manuel dominguez but it was not until eighteen sixty four that having sold out his two business interests the livery to george butler and the hardware to his partner he moved to the ranch of his father-in-law where he continued to live assisting dominguez with the management of his great property 
some years later carson bought four or five hundred acres of land adjoining the dominguez acres and turned his attention to sheep later still he became interested in the development of thoroughbred cattle and horses but continued to help his father-in-law in the directing of his ranch when rain favored the land carson in common with his neighbors amassed wealth but during dry years he suffered disappointment and loss and on one occasion was forced to take his flocks then consisting of ten thousand sheep to the mountains where he lost all but a thousand head it cost him ten thousand dollars to save the latter which amount far exceeded their value in this movement of stock he took with him as his lieutenant a young mexican named martin cruz whom he had brought up on the rancho carson was one of my cronies while i was still young and single and we remained warm friends until he died almost indescribable excitement followed the substantiated reports received in the fall of eighteen fifty seven that a train of immigrants from missouri and arkansas on their way to california had been set upon by indians near mountain meadow utah on september seventh and that thirty-six members of the party had been brutally killed particularly were the gentiles of the southwest stirred up when it was learned that the assault had been planned and carried through by one lee a mormon whose act sprang rather from the frenzy of a madman than from the deliberation of a well-balanced mind the attitude of brigham young toward the united states government at that time and his alleged threat to turn the indians loose upon the whites added color to the assertion that young's followers were guilty of the massacre but fuller investigation has absolved the mormons i believe as a society from any complicity in the awful affair some years later the two oatman girls were rescued from the indians by whom they had been tattooed and for a while they stayed at ira thompson's where i saw them in eighteen fifty seven j g nichols was re-elected mayor of los angeles and began several improvements he had previously advocated especially the irrigating of the plain below the city by August 2nd, Zanja No. 2 was completed, and this brought about the building of the Aliso Mill and the further cultivation of much excellent land. One of the passengers that left San Francisco with me for San Pedro on October 18, 1853, who later became a successful citizen of Southern California, was Edward N. MacDonald, a native of New York State. We had sailed from New York together, and together had finished the long journey to the Pacific Coast, after which I lost track of him. MacDonald had intended proceeding farther south, and I was surprised at meeting him on the street some weeks after my arrival in Los Angeles. Reaching San Pedro, he contracted to enter the service of Alexander and Banning, and remained with Banning for several years until he formed a partnership with John O. Wheeler's brother, who later went to Japan. MacDonald subsequently raised sheep on a large scale and acquired much ranch property, and in 1876 he built the block on Main Street bearing his name sixteen years later he erected another structure opposite the first one when macdonald died at wilmington on june tenth eighteen ninety nine he left his wife an estate valued at about one hundred and sixty thousand dollars which must have increased in value since then manyfold n a potter a rhode islander came to los angeles in eighteen fifty five bringing with him a stock of yankee goods and opening a store and two years later he bought a two-story brick building on main street opposite the Bella Union. Louis Jasinski was a partner with Potter for a while under the firm name of Potter & Company, but later Jasinski left Los Angeles for San Francisco. Potter died here, 1868. Possibly the first instance of an Angelino proffering a gift to the President of the United States, and that too of something characteristic of this productive soil and climate, 
was when henry d barrows in september called on president buchanan in washington and on behalf of william wolfskill Manuel requena and himself gave the chief executive some california fruit and wine i have before me a ledger of the year eighteen fifty seven it is a medium-sized volume bound in leather and on the outside cover is inscribed in the bold old-fashioned handwriting of fifty-odd years ago the simple legend newmark kramer and company each page is headed with the name of some still-remembered worthy of that distant day who was a customer of the old firm and in eighteen fifty seven a customer was always a friend according to the method of that period the accounts are closed not with balancing entries and red lines but in the blackest of black ink with the good straightforward and positive inscription settled the perusal of this old book carries me back over the vanished years as the skull in the hand of the ancient monk so does this antiquated volume recall to me how transitory is this life and all its affairs a few remain to tell a younger generation the story of the early days but the majority even as in eighteen fifty seven they carefully balanced their scores in this old ledger have now closed their accounts in the great book of life they have settled with their heaviest creditor they have gone before him to render their last account with few or no exceptions they were a manly sterling race and have no doubt that he found their assets far greater than their liabilities End of chapter fifteen